Hello, welcome to WRBB 104.9 podcast with our uh, new episode of New Politics. I'm Caleb Dreisman, our podcast director, and I'm here with Susanna Mays and Hannah Rosman. And we're here with a very special spooky episode of the political of our NU Politics podcast, because what is more spooky than being given a big decision over a bunch of stuff that you know absolutely nothing about, which is why we're today we're going to be talking about the voting guide for Massachusetts. That's right. We're going to be giving you a voting guide for Massachusetts, basically detailing the two big questions that are on the ballot. Um, There's obviously the presidential election, which is kind of a big deal, but I think you've heard enough about that already. So we're going to be basically dealing with question one and question two today. Um, And I'm joined with, again, Susanna Mays and Hannah Rosman. Why don't you two say hello? I'm Susanna Mays. Very excited to be talking about this. Love local elections. Hey, I'm Hannah, and uh, I am super excited to be talking about these important questions for Massachusetts voters. So, all right, let's start with let's start with question one then, because that's um I don't know much about that, but I know Hannah, you've been doing a lot of research on it. Can you explain to me what question one is sort of about? I know it's something about a right to repair. So the right to repair is basically a law proposing that. Um, motor vehicle owners and independent repair facilities will have to be provided with access to um, mechanical data related to vehicle maintenance and repair. This law would like take effect uh, in 2022, but um, there there are some concerns about uh, data security uh, that makes it a bit of a complicated issue. Yeah, what I think is interesting when I was doing a little reading about this is that there already was a right to repair ballot initiative in 2012 where, because basically I guess like now newer cars are always collecting data on like how your car is doing, how it's driving. And usually it's it's the auto manufacturers, the people who make the car, the dealerships that has access to that information. But in 2012, there was this initiative that kind of was the first right to repair part one that like allowed your local de- your local repair person not connected with the dealership to be able to plug in there's like a literal port that they could plug in and get that data and that passed with like I want to say like 80 plus percent of the vote so like mass residents were like yes the local repair shops should have access to that data but now it's sort of like updating it to have it be wireless because I guess now the newer cars, the data kind of just magically via the cloud goes to the dealership and the local people are like, Hey, we passed this law, you know, eight years ago, we just need to update it to match sort of the technology that's currently in the cars. Huh. I didn't actually know anything about that, uh, that 2012 mandate. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. And this is actually like not just a Massachusetts issue. Uh, Massachusetts is just one of 20 States that have this question, uh, on the ballot this this election day. Um, and also, bringing it back to Massachusetts, um, Elizabeth Warren actually proposed a national version of this law uh, last year, but it has not happened yet. So this is so this is basically allowing repair shops to repair their cars. How is that gonna affect me? Like if I'm, if I had I had a car in Boston uh, last year, I don't have one now because it's an SUV and parking was a nightmare. Um, but when I did have a car in Boston, I did get into some 
uh, minor scrapes and bumps because it's driving in a city. I don't want to go into it too much. It's it's hard to it's hard driving sometimes. Um, but <laughs> yeah, but with that car um, uh, having yes. a bit of damage, like what what would this right to repair allow me to do as a consumer? I think it's definitely more targeted to preventative maintenance. So, because say you have your newfangled car that is able to kind of keep an eye on how things are going, how the brake pads are working, how the the belts are working. I'm I'm using car terms to make it sound like I know what I'm saying. Thank you for giving me the space to imagine that I have a new car. This fix, yeah. this is a very good space you're building here. Exactly. Continue. So you get so you don't really know what's going on under the hood, but you're. Your car computer kind of is keeping up with things, and it's commun- And it, you might get an email from the dealership being, "Hey, your brake pa- pads are wearing out. You should come in and fix them." And you're like, "I don't want my brakes to give out on the highway, so I'm going to go into my local Honda dealership and get my brake pads repaired." But basically, the p- proponents of this question want it to be open up to not just the dealership. So having your local repair guy be able to reach out to you and say, hey, we know that your car isn't running smoothly. Let me fix it so you don't have to be giving all of your money to Honda. Yeah, it also allows like um, more shopping around, I guess. Um, And hopefully that means a better price for you as the car owner. Okay, so I could get a better price for my, my, not for maybe perhaps that bumper that got cracked a few days ago, but... For my oil changes and my uh, brake pads being fixed. Okay. There's also been some talks about about an app that was sort of a lot of the people were like, what if this kind of now that there's going to be this all this data that's available for about your car, some people were saying or proponents of it were saying, let's make an app so then the drivers themselves can have access to that data and sort of making making the driver more aware of what's wrong with their car is going to be, you know, making things open source is going to lead to like having more knowledge about what's going on and sort of taking away the monopoly of dealing with your car away from the dealership. Yeah. I mean, this all sounds like a great deal. I get, get cheaper prices on my car, get more access to my car's knowledge. So why is there opposition to this bill? Like why are people sort of upset about it? Because I know there's been some rumblings of like, this isn't a good idea. Yeah, there's there's a lot of concern about data security. Um, and actually a lot of the concern has come from um, the Massachusetts Coalition Against Sexual Assault and Domestic Violence. Um, they're really worried that this data could be breached in some way and accessed um, to allow people to monitor um, people through like their car movements. Um, And they are worried that like this could lead to like enhanced stalking or um, help domestic abusers uh, closely track their victims. So this is an interesting point because I right be- I'm gonna this is gonna be a little bit of an anecdote. Um, right before this podcast happened, I was in my ro- I was outside in the in uh, my living room with uh, my roommate. One of my roommates actually is a um, generally a he's a law student and he's a proponent of um, he was phone banking for question two, which we're gonna talk about later. But I did I mentioned to him like, hey, we're doing this you know this episode on um, on the voter guide and we're gonna be talking about question one, question two. He's like, oh, did you hear about uh, the the, like this set the um, Jane Doe organization talking about stalking and sexual assault with this. So this is really interesting and I, I literally just learned this. I would not have known that is that apparently that whole thing about um, the concerns you're talking about with 
uh, fear about the data leaking for stalking and all these sorts of things was a concern with the California uh, right to repair law. And the Massachusetts right to repair law was different. There was definitely concern in California and also Nevada as well last year, I think. Um, and this is a different law. It was like, you know, written by the Massachusetts legislature. But I think that because of, uh, you know, all of the controversy surrounding those laws and because this is generally in the same vein, that concern is also um, coming over into this one. Yeah, and I mean, people, proponents of this question would say, you know, that's just scare tactics. The The wording of the law says that it, the data that would be shared would only be, you know, true maintenance records as far as like how your car's actually running. It wouldn't include your location and those sort of things. So it kind of has been this sort of, you know, one side says this, one side says the other. I think it's also important to say that this question has had so, so much money being poured into it. I know I've seen ads on both sides all over the internet. Um, my most recent numbers is that both sides combined have poured $41 million into either ads or just campaign funding for or against. And you have a lot of big names here. So people who are in favor of it, you know, you have your local repair shops, but you also have the big names. You have O'Reilly, you have like Napa, you know, the people who would be selling the parts if someone wanted to fix it themselves. And then on the anti side, you know, you have the car manufacturers themselves. So, you know, Honda and Toyota and Ford, they're pouring millions of dollars into us because they want to keep that business to themselves. Yeah, it does seem, it seems like a really charged question with, uh, but mostly business to business. It seems like the consumers are just sort of caught in the middle of this web of uh, a lot of money being poured into it, as you were saying. Well, I don't know. Do, what, are you, what are your two opinions on question one? I, um, I actually am a currently resident of Maryland, so I will not be voting on the Massachusetts ballot. I've already voted. I've cast my ballot in. But uh, do you, for those of you who are voting in Boston, I mean, or in the Massachusetts area, what are your, what, I mean, do, are you willing to share how you'll be voting? So I am indeed a, a Boston voter, and I already did my early voting. Go early vote. Go do, submit your mail-in ballots. But I voted yes on this one, uh, mainly just because I want to give more options to the consumer. I mean, I don't like the idea of someone be sort of being forced to go to their dealership just because their car isn't working right. I sort of like the idea of supporting the more local shop and sort of giving more access to that information. Uh, but it does kind of raise a good point. You're kind of hinting at this, Caleb, is sort of what issues go on the ballot. I mean, this is kind of a pretty specific thing that that maybe the state legislators should have should have dealt with. I think I think it came out because they couldn't deal with it or they couldn't reach an agreement, and then it went to the voters. But this is you know kind of a really specific question that a lot of local voters are trying to having to rush to read up on to make a choice. But I'll be voting yes. I am unfortunately not a Massachusetts voter. I'm a Virginia voter, but I do think that if I were a Massachusetts voter, I would have to agree with Susanna. Um, it seems like a really good and useful um, law for small businesses that could really, you know, help increase their business. Um, and also just, you know, create some fairness in the repair industry that uh, is currently not there. Well, that's good to hear. I mean, Obviously, I 
we, we probably should have put this at the beginning, but keep in mind, we are not qualified professionals. We are not super authorized to talk about repairing or uh, methods of electoral systems. Actually, I guess I am a political science student, so maybe I'm a little more qualified to talk about question two, which this would be a great time to segue into. Ha ha. See, see how that's going. Um, but please vote your own vote with your own belief. Do your own research if you want to. This is meant as a guide or sort of an assist, not the be all end all for these voting things. But speaking of earlier, it's time to talk about question two. So I think, Caleb, you, you already led into this. You're the poli-sci student. Can you kind of give us a rundown about what is ranked choice voting and what voting yes and voting no on question two would mean for Massachusetts voters? Sure. Um, ranked choice voting is a form of electoral support, which ironically, if it goes through, means you won't be just voting yes or no on your candidates. Ranked choice voting... Um, is a method of voting which should which is the intent of is to prevent the things called the spoiler effect or just um, candidates that people are generally not a fan of. So currently in the United States elections, we run under the first past the post system. It's a pretty simple system. Whoever has the most votes wins. If you have one vote more than the opposing party, you win. If one person likes you more than the other candidate, that's it. You've won the election. It does not matter how many people are voting. It does not matter how many candidates there are. There can only be one winner. And whoever has the most votes is that winner. So ranked choice voting looks to change that up a little bit. Instead of having one vote as you go in, you are instead listing your candidates by your preference. So let's say we have candidate A, candidate B, and candidate C. Candidate C is a very strong Republican. Candidate A is a very strong Democrat. And candidate C is sort of in the middle. Um, so let's say your middle party candidate is one that actually most people genuinely like as a person and is more popular. Then you would list that candidate as your number one choice. And now, if you were a registered Democrat and you, were, and you had your, that as your number one choice, but you still like the Democratic Party and you're worried that, hey, if I don't vote for... Um, for the Democratic Party, then the Republicans are just going to win. Well, you put in Democrat as your number two, and then that is your second ranked choice. And now everyone is going to be doing this. Everyone is going to be voting and putting down their preferences, listing their top choice, their second choice, and their third choice. And then uh, the Elections Commission takes all of those votes together. They count up all the votes. They count up everyone's first choice. And if a candidate has 51% of the vote, then that candidate wins. That means that candidate has a majority of everyone's vote. Then, if it's 51% on that first preference, then the election's over. That's it. It was almost like a first-past-the-post vote. However, if that doesn't happen, then uh, we have a little bit more paperwork to do. Basically, the election commission will look at who all these first preferences. So let's say a bunch of people are voting for candidate A, a bunch of people are voting for candidate B, uh, and then maybe only a few people voted for candidate C. Then what they would do is they'd actually take out candidate C as the first uh, from the race. Candidate C would be eliminated, and everyone who had candidate C as their first choice would instead have their second choice counted as their vote. So let's say candidate C is in the middle, uh, but ma the majority of people who were supporting candidate C were actually Democrats, so they listed all their second rank as a Democrat. Then all of their votes would go to the Democratic candidate, and that Democratic candidate would win. What this allows you to do is basically vote for the candidates you want to pick instead of just candidates that you're like, oh, 
this candidate is really popular versus this other really popular candidate. And if I don't vote for this really popular candidate, then I'm just throwing my vote away. That's a very common phrase you hear with first past the post voting is throwing your vote away. Ranked choice voting seeks to stop that uh, sort of factor. So it's almost like it's kind of like a runoff election, but like within an election. So say you're like narrowing down the field down to those final two, you could kind of have all of this information about who voters prefer, who their second choice, third choice, I mean, ranked is in the name, kind of like having a runoff election within one normal election. That's exactly right. Yeah. So what kind of elections would this be applied to? Would it be local national? What kind of things would I get to rank? So this ranked choice voting would not be for the um, presidential election yet. It would be general elections for uh, state offices and then some also county offices. So this would be a a multi-level, but it wouldn't go up to the federal election yet. I just wanted to bring up the fact that actually um, Massachusetts is not the first state to enable ranked choice voting. There are actually multiple other states that do do ranked choice voting in the primaries. So um, States like Maine are actually doing ranked choice voting in their primaries, and you'll see that when it comes to uh, the primary season. If you were paying attention in 2019 during the Massachusetts primaries and also the Democratic primaries and the Republican primaries nationally, you would notice that Maine was actually voting differently. Um, Yep. It's very interesting. Yeah. So I was going to ask you, you know, if you know how people in Maine who have already been doing ranked choice voting for a little bit now, how they're liking that. Are they enjoying it more than traditional voting? Uh, they do seem to be enjoying it. There seems to be a generally positive response about it. But that's not to say ranked choice voting doesn't have um, potential downsides. Um, I personally am a fan of ranked choice voting, as you could tell by my impassionate uh talking about it. I think it's it's a really good idea for um, giving voters more choice and allowing us to maybe move away from a two-party system where, uh, because I feel like that is sort of kind of um, stifling to a lot of debate and a lot of positions. But uh, there are some, again, there are some downsides. I'm not free of saying that. Uh, first of all, ranked choice voting is a new system. It's going to take some time to set up. It's going to take some time to teach people. People aren't necessarily going to know how it works. But, you know, if they listen to a voting guide, maybe they'd get some more education on that. It would make things easier. But besides that, obviously, if you're running this election multiple times, you're doing an instant runoff vote, as Susanna was saying, then it's going to be more expensive. The Elections Commission is going to have to spend more money on this. It's going to take a bit more time to process all the votes. So things are going to take a little longer. And then the uh, final downside with this, and this is the one that is a little tricky, is that uh, there's a concept in elections known as as roll-off voting, and this is a bad thing actually. Um, roll-off voting is when you are where you see all these different questions on a ballot. You know, there's you got your elections for your your national candidates, your federal candidates, your state candidates, your local elections, and there's just so many people that by the end, by like question eight on the ballot, you get so just your average voter is just so tired of this thing, or just so bored, or just doesn't know what they're doing that they don't even bother voting at all. And that is an increased concern with um, with ranked choice voting because of how uh, elections work. If you have like a ranked choice voting election with about seven candidates, chances are your average voter is not going to know all seven of these candidates. So they may have a really good option for candidate one. They might have a really good option for candidate two, and then maybe candidate three. But then by four or five, they just really don't know what they're doing. So if these, so if you have that an election where there's a lot of people who don't know really. Who they're voting for on these lower tiers combined with an election that's very contentious 
You can actually end up with situations where a lot of people's fifth or sixth choices are being counted and they didn't actually care about them that much. So you can end up with some very strange results if voters aren't properly educated in certain situations. I know I was kind of paying attention to the preliminary elections this year that were going on in September. And I know that there's a great kind of case of this, you know, really crowded field in, I believe it was Mass 4, which is the seat that was vacated by Joe Kennedy when he ran for Senate. Um, There was like seven, eight, maybe even 10 people who were running for this. And then the winner, you know, only got about like 20 something percent of the vote but then they just happen to get the smidge bit more. So I don't know. We don't want to, not try to say too far, but it seems a little almost undemocratic to have someone win an election that only gets, you know, 20% of the vote. Yeah. I mean, that's another thing. First, the, the counter argument, of course, to that whole thing about um, roll off voting and bad lower elections is that in general, Maybe you don't feel like you have a lot of freedom of choice in the first place with only two candidates or seven candidates that a lot of people aren't happy about. And that's what ranked choice voting is trying to solve. Yeah. So with with the issue that you were talking about with roll off voting, are you allowed to just rank some of the candidates or if you are ranking them for ranked choice voting, do you have to rank every single one? I believe you are allowed to only rank some of the candidates and not all of them. But again, this brings up the point where it's some people might fill in the candidates anyway because they think they need to um, just fill them all out. This is, again, where, where education comes into a big play is that you got to educate people on how this exactly works because it is a big change. And it definitely will require people to do their homework a little bit more. I mean, if there's a wide field and you just kind of glance through and you're like, OK, this is the one person I like, that seems you could probably make that decision a lot quicker than you could. Let me read up on every single candidate and then rank them in the order of how much I like them. So, but I don't know, maybe, maybe a more educated voter base is a good thing and we shouldn't write off, oh, the voters will have to do the more, more homework is a bad thing. That's entirely possible. I mean, at, at the end of the day though, it is in the voters' hands, you know? Just like this ballot, I, um, unless you guys have any other questions, I think we're about ready to wrap up here. Yeah. Do we want to talk about quickly the um, the elections that are also going to be on the mass ballot? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So in addition to these two questions, you know, we have right to repair is question one and rank choices number two. There are, of course, many other local elections on on the board, on the ballot to be specific. Um, but Massachusetts is kind of unique, you know, because it is such a blue state. The general elections in November are usually seen as less important or less competitive than the preliminary ones where you have the primary about who the Democratic candidate is. So for any on-campus voters, you will be selecting um, Senator. We have Senator Ed Markey running for re-election against the Republican. We also have Congresswoman Ayanna Presley running unopposed, as well as a smattering of, you know, state senators and state representatives. But like I said, a lot of the pundits will say, you know, they're so likely to go blue just because we are in Boston, we are in Massachusetts. There is sort of this whole question about, are these even competitive elections? Why do Republicans run in Massachusetts when the much more important elections happen in September when you are picking which Democrat is going to run? Yeah. So the the Republican running against uh, Ed Markey is Kevin O'Connor. Do we know uh, why why he's running? Does he have does he have any important policies he wants us to know about? I mean, 
it is kind of a, it is strange, honestly, talking about Republicans running for Senate in Massachusetts. As you mentioned, Ayanna Presley is unopposed, and there's other elections that are going on unopposed. The only um, only you know federal or like statewide election that does have opposition is Kevin O'Connor, and um, it's interesting. I don't think there's a specific reason why Kevin O'Connor is running. He's not stating. I mean, obviously. He, you have to say you want you're running because you want to win. That's obvious. Like you don't want to be in there and be like, "Oh, I'm running because I don't think I'm going to win." No one's going to donate to your campaign. But it, this is an important point to note that there is like a lot of different reasons candidates do want to run, even when they don't think they win. Um, they could be looking to, as you said, elevate a certain issue if they really want to bring to the field. You know, hey, Ed Markey has been doing, I don't know, a horrible job on law enforcement because you're very strong on um, on police brutality or whatever your positions are on that and you really disagree with what Ed Markey's been doing you re you might run to really highlight that and bring out that point out in Ed Markey's campaign and his platforming um, you might also do it just because you want to sort of build up your own platform and become more popular uh, it's important to note that the the Democratic Party and the Republican Party are very well set institutions these days and any chance you can get in these parties to sort of build your own name or like essentially get a promotion in the party or at least grow your rank and status is one that a lot of people would like to take and what better way to sort of gain uh, popularity or clout or um, or awareness of your own existence within your own party than to run for senate so kevin o'connor could be doing either of those things um he has received endorsements from charlie baker and other people so maybe he also is just going because he thinks he's going to win it's possible. Maybe. I will say that, you know, the first the first thing on his campaign website that it really talks about, well, I mean, he talks a little bit about, you know, not liking partisan conflict, but like, okay. But then the the one strong um a policy proposal that he has is term limits for senators. And that's interesting because, you know, the man he's running against, Ed Markey, has been uh, not in the Senate, but, you know, he was first uh, in the House of Representatives and now he's in the Senate and he has been on Capitol Hill uh, since 1976. So he has been there a long time. So it's interesting that the man running against him is, you know, being vocal about term limits. If I was running against Ed Markey, I think I'd want term limits too. That guy just can't quit, huh? Really can't. <laughs> He's having too much fun. I know. Did you guys see those um, ads from Ed Markey during the primary of him being like, I'm a cool dude. I walk in my sneakers. Oh, yeah. I think we could do a whole nother episode all about sort of the the reinvigoration of Ed Markey and the way that his team was able to make him kind of appear well to, to the youth vote. But it certainly was a feat that they were able to cast the older candidate, you know, Ed Markey versus Joe Kennedy as the one who's more connected and more hip. But I don't know. We'll see how, we'll see how he does. Yeah. I mean, maybe we'll, may, Hey, maybe sneak peek to a next, a future episode talking about, um, Talking about the revitalization of Ed Markey and the Ed Markey-Joe Kennedy race, because definitely a lot happened there. And uh, I, I, have, I certainly have opinions. So, But I think that's about it for today, though. I think we've, um, we've covered our two questions. We hopefully have given you, everyone listening, a good opinion on sort of what the questions are about, what some of the upsides are, what some of the downsides are. So 
Um, once again, my name is Caleb Dreisman. I'm the podcast director at WRBB Radio uh, 104.9. And I'm here with Susanna Mays and Hannah Rossman. We've been guiding you through this tumultuous election time. And I think that's about it. Thank you so much for listening and tune in to our other episodes on WRBBradio.org. Nice. Yay. Bye. 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 Go vote. Go vote. This episode of WRBB's New Politics was hosted by Hannah Rosman, Susanna Mays, and Caleb Dreisman. This recording wouldn't be possible without the help of Caleb Dreisman, our podcast director, and Andrew Zendry, WRBB's general manager. This episode of New Politics was mixed and edited by our audio engineers. Special thanks to the WRBB leadership staff, Northeastern University, and Northeastern Student Activity Fee for funding this podcast. Our theme music is Owl by Mari Getty. Head to wrbbradio.org where you can find the latest episodes of all our podcasts, listen to our internet live stream, and read up on the latest music reviews. And make sure to follow us on all social media at WRBB Radio. Thanks for tuning in.